This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. It's like I'm sitting too uh, with another group online and um, I just get done and it, it feels really nice just to go from one to the other so, so quickly. Um, I wanted to um, begin tonight by uh, sharing something with you uh, that as often happens came to mind right after class last week that I felt had some relationship to some of our discussion um, and will take us into tonight's work as well. So it's, it's perfect. Um, so in my research on the definition of proprioception, just to go over it a little bit so this makes sense. So proprioception is um, defined as the awareness of the position and movement of the body. It's an internal awareness, not a um, visual awareness. And it's conscious and unconscious, uh, both. And um, it's, um, its importance is in that it stabilizes uh, the body um, against the various uh, perturbations of our world. And um, We don't, it's something we don't notice. We have to act, we can learn to pay attention to it. We can learn to notice it, but we don't notice it. We, um, we don't notice it because we're habituated. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how when we're taught, we're given Zazen instruction, we are asked to please sit still and to try not to move. And it's not because there's something wrong with moving. There are definitely some um, lovely advantages to sitting still, but more, I think it's to bring us into awareness of our bodies. So I don't know if, if you do this practice, some places do and some don't, but I learned a practice where if I was sitting in Zazen and I felt like I needed to move for some reason, my leg was hurting or something, I would uh, put my hands in gasho and do a very small bow. And then I would move slowly uh, into the new position and then bow again. And the reason for that is to bring awareness um, to oneself and to anybody who might be sitting next to you that you're going to move. And that begins to work against this habitual movement that we do. So normally if I'm sitting at my desk or I'm sitting here, um, I move and I don't always notice that I'm moving. If I'm uncomfortable, I'm sitting in a chair somewhere, maybe when I used to go to the movies, um, sometimes those seats aren't very comfortable and you're watching a movie and you shift, you know, so there's a lot of habitual, um, 
movement. Now there's proprioception going on, but it's, it's at the unconscious level. And so the body is taking care of itself and the mind is free to engage in other tasks, which is great. But there's also the capacity to practice this um, conscious proprioception. And that's what we did last week. And when we, um, we became aware of posture and then started to feel the, the movements of the body breathing, become aware of breath internally. And then we practiced walking, um, getting up, sitting down. We, we took our body into various postures, but we did so slowly so that we could really notice what was going on. So even though the unconscious aspects of proprioception were taking place, um, we were also very conscious. And it, if you remember back, it kind of changes how you move. When you move with awareness, there's, um, there tends to be a different quality to it. Very often it's slower, but there's also a different quality to, to the movement. Whereas when we move in our habitual way, um, it, it has its own quality, its own quality. So um, I thought that was imp important to bring up. It's very interesting to me that the Buddha starts his meditation instruction with such basic understanding of the body. He's bringing us to the body and there's a kind of a, a, a an acknowledgement of understanding of how, how it is we, we are as bodies. So then we get to this um, sentence, which I had written down as a quote because it struck me so much when I first read it and then I didn't share it with you. So um, this quote says, proprioception is what allows one to learn to walk in complete darkness without losing balance. And um, I, I was deeply touched by that, the profundity of that in terms of not just what my physical body does, but how, um, how much that is life. We walk in complete darkness, and yet we need to maintain our balance. So I see that as um, describing our spiritual life, too. And to me, it connects the, the body and the practice that we're being offered in this, in this text. We, um, the complete darkness can be thought of as the darkness of just not knowing. Um, we don't, we, we may think we know, but we don't really know. And I was reminded of another um, story of, from my life some years ago, when I lived in California, I uh, would like to go on these Sierra Club hikes. I don't know if any of you have had that experience, but the Sierra Club sponsors hikes, and they're very nice. And this was a moon-watching hike in a place called Point Reyes, which is a beautiful seashore area. Actually, it had one of the fires this summer, so um, hopefully it's still somewhat okay. But... Anyway, uh, so I met people there, you know, before it was in the summer and I met people there before sunset and we walked up a mountain. And then as the sun was going down, we're at the top of the mountain and waiting for the moon to come up and someone had made a mistake. The moon didn't rise that night. And we're up there in the pitch dark 
We can't see anything. We can't see each other. And we have to come down the mountain because someone finally figured out that the moon wasn't going to rise till sometime in the morning. (laughs) So I remember coming down that mountain in the pitch dark and each step I had to feel the ground and um, one senses just come alive. It's like the whole body is sensing. And, and of course, then there's this unconscious part that's keeping um, balance. that's keeping you upright, keeping you stable. And you're just slowly, slowly walking your way down the mountain. So we finally made it down. It was very slow, but that's what came to mind. I'd forgotten about that, that, um, that situation. So that, I think that's kind of like our lives. I don't know, very often we don't really know where we're going, but um, we have to go. We have to take the next step. And um, so then I remembered a koan. This is a very well-known koan, and I love it very much. And um, it, it addresses that and also takes us into the next category of interoception, which is the sense of internal states of the body, which we'll be talking about and practicing with tonight. So I'll read you this wonderful koan. Koan 89 of the Blue Cliff Record. Um, In this translation, the hands and eyes of the Bodhisattva of great compassion. So here is the case. Yunyan asked Dao Wu, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? So some, uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, this picture uh, or this depiction of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion. There are many depictions of him, her, both genders are involved uh, in, through history, but there's one where there's um, all these arms. And uh, each hand has a tool or some significant object. So it's a, a, a bodhisattva with many, many arms. So that's what uh, this person was talking about. And these are two brothers, by the way. Um, what does the bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? Ah, uh, yes. And the hands have an eye. Some depictions, the hands have an uh, eye in the middle of the palm. Um, Dawu said, it's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. So just imagine how often we each do that at night, sound asleep in the dark. We reach back for that pillow and we move it to a more comfortable position. Um, Yunyan says, I understand. Dawu says, how do you understand it? Meaning, what, what do you understand? Yunyan says, all over the body are hands and eyes. All over the body, there are hands and eyes. Dawu says, you have said quite a bit there, but you've only said 80% of it. Dawu, uh, Yunyan says, what do you say, elder brother? Dawu says, Throughout the body, 
our hands and eyes. So not just on the surface, but throughout. So that takes us to uh, tonight's meditation. Um, so I would like to, um, to read to you. Let's see. Oh, before I do that, I also um, wanted to um, bring forward uh, in response to John's question last week about what the relevance or what the, um, what the relevance of this practice would be maybe for us. And um, there are a lot of ways of responding to that. And I, and I did some last week. But this week, uh, I was, I'm, I'm in a course to become a, a wellness coach. <laughs> and part of what we are being taught is mindfulness. And this is mindfulness for stress reduction. It's, it's not, um, and, and um, this particular uh, thing I'm going to read is from a section on dealing with emotions and self-regulation. So these are uh, very uh, relevant uses of the tradition of mindfulness, which comes from the same tradition as this four foundations of mindfulness. So in this, um, I read this section. Um, so in the stress response, um, where is it? Ah. So in a stress response, and this, I guess, is, has been noted um, through testing, um, there is um, a beginning of the, of the emotion, of, the, of the, the reaction to the stressor. So something happens, and there's a reaction to it. And if you're paying attention... Problem is most of us, most of the time are not paying attention, but if you cultivate attention, this, there is a reaction that arises and he's calling it an emotion. So it might be anger, it might be grief, it might be fear, whatever, it arises. And then there's something called the refractory period. And the third part is there's the end. So there's an arising, like a breath. There's something happening. And then there's a vanishing. This is the same cycle of impermanence that um, we're studying in this um, text. This is impermanence. And if you're there for it, in this refractory period, at this time, you can um, be with how you are and perhaps not react in a way that you would not want to react. So this is being presented as a tool for self-regulation. Um, the Buddhas, um, of course, that's helpful to, to monks, um, but he was presenting it as a way of discovering the impermanence and leading people into understanding and permanence. But um, these, these um, teachings are being used quite a bit today. Um, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction by John Kabat-Zinn um, is taught all over the place, hospitals and 
you know, a lot of places. Um, so it, it, uh, it has a, a value, just like sitting zazen. The purpose of sitting zazen is not to reduce stress or sp- something specific like that, but it does. It does. And what we want from it is up to us. So I'm emphasizing um, the way Buddha was trying to teach something through these, these uh, exercises. But um, that came this week as I was studying and I thought, Oh, there's, there's a relevance to, to all of this as well. So I wanted to let you know that too. Um, Maybe before I start to get into the text, I'd like to hear if you have anything to offer or questions or anything, anything more you want to bring up about all of that. Well, I'll, I'll offer this one, you know, that uh, when the sort of anger and upset arises, you know, it kind of arises and it, it arises and the, the refractory period for me is about like, uh, maybe 15 minutes to a half an hour before I have to, you know, have to go, go to work. And so I'm usually struggling with the whole thing all night. Yes. Once, um, for myself, once I start to watch this happening, it's kind of fascinating really. Kind of fascinating <laughs> how how this works. Thank you. Anything else? I I found it um, at times more challenging than not when, like at work, when people when there's a heated situation and I don't react with emotion. I am (laughs) labeled as um, unfeeling. And my, my kind of um, my tendency when I feel like people are um, trying to pigeonhole me or force me into having a reaction that they want me to have. I sort of dig in my heel even more and I become very to them, very matter of fact. And I always say in business, um, I'm just taking the personality out of the situation and I'm focusing on the, the issue. And to me, it's like, that seems very reasonable. Um, but people are wanting me to be, you know, more feeling in a way that they seem they they feel is is worthy and i just don't think that that there is a real need for that and i don't really know how to like sometimes hold my ground and not be bothered you know by people wanting me to get hooked onto their onto their roller coaster right Right. And if you were to get hooked onto their roller coaster, you wouldn't notice your own. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there are lots of ways 
to react. Um, digging in your heels and sticking with what you're doing is one way. If you notice something come up, there's no um, particular um, prescription for what happens in that refractory stage. Um, I think what was being presented in the workshop I was in was a kind of a simple vision of, you know, emotion, something happens, emotion arises, you do something, emotion falls away. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But also there's what I hear you say is that, um, well, there's the digging in the heels, which is, which is what you've decided to do with what's happening. Um, and, um, but then there's some pressure coming that you're having some feelings about too. Mm -hmm. And then there's something coming up then in you that then you can look at how you feel about that. And um, you may choose in that moment, if you're there, if you're there and mindful of this, um, of what's going on for you, you can decide how you want to respond. So you might want to just keep doing what you're doing. You might want to acknowledge something, you know, you might want to have a conversation. It, you can decide. And I think that was the point that this person was making was instead of it being just a kind of a habitual reaction, um, which sometimes happens, um, it could be uh, one can decide what one wants to do. Um, and it doesn't just become an explosion if someone's angry or uh, a running away if someone's afraid. I mean, again, these are really simple kind of um, uh, stories that I think our, our day-to-day reactions are a lot more complicated and nuanced, uh, such as what you're bringing up. But to be there for the whole thing, to be able to be there for the whole thing, um, I think it helps to practice Sazen so we have the stability and also to practice mindfulness so that we um, can watch, you know, we can watch and be with. Um, And then we can do whatever, whatever seems appropriate. So I think that's that someone, uh, another koan, um, what is the teaching of a lifetime, teaching of the Buddha, I don't have the exact words, but what is the Buddhist teaching of a lifetime? And the response is an appropriate response. So what the Buddha was teaching was how to, how to cultivate a practice that allows one to respond appropriately, exactly as you would want to. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Please. When you say appropriate response, you followed up by saying exactly as one wants to. It's funny, I have a strong reaction to like the word appropriate. (laughs) My mother was a Freudian trained therapist and she was always using the word that's inappropriate or that's appropriate. (laughs) And it feels a little annoying to me. 
Yeah, I don't know. You know, this would have been in Chinese. So some English translator attached appropriate to whatever the Chinese is. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm studying koans with someone who's Chinese. And the ideograms, the, the characters, are usually um, really, they have a different quality than that. Sometimes there are people facing each other. I, I, I can find out um, what the character is for that particular one, but I bet it would have a very different feel than appropriate. Yes, appropriate feels so constrained to me. There's another word that's on the same root, apropos. Mm-hmm. How does that feel? A little bit more spontaneous, perhaps. <laughs> These words make a huge amount of difference, and we are studying this tradition and translation. And um, this is my constant, I'm constantly looking up, trying to find out what the original word is. Right. When I, especially when I don't like the word, right. <laughs> the English word. <laughs> So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So connected with both of those things, if I could jump in, because Shokuchi, it feels like what you're saying, like with both Vicky and, and Maddie, is this, that there is no one response. There is no one thing that you're supposed to do that we're trying to get if we just knew what the right thing was. That that's not what this teaching is about, is it's appropriate to you in your expression in that particular moment with everything else that's going on. So Maddie, I think that <laughs> this is right up your alley in terms of all this freedom and spaciousness to, to just find your way in that moment. Shokuchi, would you say that that's, I feel like that's what you're saying. Very much. Thank you, Joan, for, for offering that. Yes. It's, um, I have a feeling that I've seen this character and I know what it means, but I, so I have to check it out, but I, I think it's two people and it's, it's a meeting that happens in a moment, um, a completely unique moment and there's a meeting. So, um, so it's not like a standard where everybody cookie cutter, everybody responds this way and this is the right way, and the other way is the wrong way. And that's why it's, it's a practice, um, and that's why mindfulness and this kind of um, tranquility are helpful, because you don't respond out of habit, um, unless, unless what comes up as habit is also what you want to do. You know, it's, it's, you clearly have this big spaciousness of choice, I, I don't know, everybody's so different, but I, when I'm reactive, I don't feel like it's very spacious. <laughs> I feel like I'm just like, ah, you know, and to have, to have something happen, uh, you know, that I react to, and then to have some space around it so that, do I, you know, I can determine whether I say something or I don't say something, whether I keep doing what I'm doing or whether I do something different. Um, that's, that's the kind of um, attitude that I think is, is being um, presented here.
Shokuchi, I just wanted to add one thing. Uh, just in my practice over the years, and I started my practice with your first class uh, in California, so it's been a few years. And what I've noticed is um, with Zazen, there is, at least for me, um, uh, I seem to have um, developed a lot more space between stimulus and response. And that gives me the opportunity to, uh, I think of it like the matrix, you know, the bullet is fired and you can see around it. It gives me the opportunity to figure out what outcome I want out of the situation mm -hmm. and then tailor my reaction accordingly, right? So is it an inquiry into why is that person saying something? Why are they feeling that way? Versus, um, as Vicky said, I want to dig in my heels and put them in their place. But that's something, at least for me, has become less reactive and more sort of a decision I make in the moment mm -hmm. as to what outcome I want out of it. And Zazen has given me that little bit of space. Yes, I think, um, thank you, Rahul. I think the space, the, the space, the stimulus, and then the space. And that space is not just space for one to see one's own inner workings. You actually can take in the other person or other people, the uh, environment. This is really useful when fear comes up. Um, you can know what the appropriate thing is to do uh, because you have taken the time and been given, given yourself the time you take in all factors and then you make a much better, usually a much better um, response for you, right. you know, for you, whatever that is. Anything else? Well, if other thought, if more thoughts come up, We'll, we'll have some time. I kind of want to move along to the next section. Um, we are now going to take a kind of deep dive. And um, the next section is a deeper meditation on the body. Um, we're going to go from the surface, the eyes and hands on the, on the body, to the eyes and hands throughout the body. Um, and that's what interoception is. And that's what this meditation is. Um, I want to just say a couple things um, about the wording. So John brought this up last week. Um, I'm going to, uh, as I read the text, um, the word impurities comes up in reference to the uh, inside of the body. And uh, I, um, I think if you want to, again, this is a, a translation issue, but um, what that is about, uh, there's a, a couple levels. One is that this is now going from the surface or the exterior to the interior. So most people, um, most of us are rather concerned about our exterior. We're rather concerned about how we look. Um, you know, we exercise. 
we might use cosmetics, we might, you know, we do things to appear in a way that we like, we dress a certain way. Um, and nothing wrong with that. But that is um, generally more of a concern. And we don't think so much about various internal organs, unless they give us problems. If they give us problems, then we definitely start thinking about them. But for the most part, that whole thing going on inside the skin, we don't think about too much. Um, so the Buddha wanted um, for purposes of um, detaching people from a concern about appearance, these monks, to take them inside. And the inside of um, beings, um, well, for instance, if, if an animal dies and we see what was in it, um, we're often disgusted. There's nothing disgusting about it really, but we're disgusted. There's something kind of gross. So the word that came up for me, instead of impurities, came, comes out of my being a teenager. Things are gross, you know? Ooh, that's gross. So that's a kind of how we feel about, you know, piles of animal innards, including our own. Um, and, and that is basically the, the meaning of the word imp impurities in this. And also, so, so there's this... Um, movement away from what is attractive, which very often contains a strong sense of self. And I was remembering, um, I was remembering how uh, in my life, I had um, a deep attachment to my hair. Um, I had <laughs> no hair now. Um, so I've come a long way. But I had um, I had really pretty hair that I uh, had taken care of by a beautician and um, I really loved it. And I went into practice with my, what I thought was my beautiful hair. Um, and my very first intensive at Green Gulch, my three week intensive, my first practice, um, I cut it all off. People were sort of buzzing their heads. It was kind of um, the thing to do in those days. <laughs> especially at Zen centers. And the reason I did was I knew that it was really attached to the way I looked because of my hair. And also I, I used to change the color of my hair all the time. Um, I had a beautician that really loved to do that kind of stuff. And so we would play, sometimes I had blue hair and sometimes I had red hair. I had different color hair for years. And um, I had started to go gray rather young as my parents did. So I had no idea what my true color hair was for about two decades. And as I entered practice, I had this feeling of being really attached to the hair. That was me. That was the way I liked to look. And also knowing I was a bit of a fake that that actually was not me. I had different color hair underneath all that coloring. And um, so for a while I've been thinking about, I should check this out. And it was coming up kind of naturally. No one was telling me I had to do this. And no one told me to go cut my hair either. But I did. And I still have that hair. And it's still beautiful. And I've kept it. But after I cut it off, and my hair was about, you know, a quarter of an inch long at that point, 
I felt naked. I felt ashamed. Uh, I felt embarrassed. I regretted doing it. And um, yeah, I remember my teacher saying, well, what color is your hair? Because <laughs> obviously it wasn't the color that it was the day before I cut it. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what color my hair is. Um, but I really had a sense of self established around that appearance. And I think many of us do. There's some aspect of our appearance that we attach to. Um, it might be some memory of ourselves as younger people or, um, you know, the way we were at a certain time in our life or some aspect of our body that we really like. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that except that we can suffer a lot when that changes. And I went through the suffering of, of giving up that, that um, sense of myself, but we're all, we all will eventually because that's the nature of the body. So the Buddha was trying to bring this teaching to his monks that this attachment to the surface is a source of suffering and the beginning of this text, it talks about this is a way to the end of suffering. So as we can sort of loosen up our attachment um, to, to um, our, our creation of a self in things, um, we will suffer less. So this is um, this particular portion of the, this exercise of the four, of the four foundations I understand, I read, is when a monk is ordained in, in Thailand or in any of the forest Theravada traditions, this is the practice they're given right after ordination is the, what I'm going to read tonight. And it is, um, I was listening to a talk on this section and the, and the monk that was talked said, this is the one everybody wants to skip over. <laughs> There's a couple here in this text that people would just like kind of want to skip over. So, so this is going to take us into the body and it will, uh, it might be kind of gross and um, it may bring up feelings of either attraction or aversion. You may notice that um, thinking about a certain part gives you some pleasure or thinking about a certain part you don't want to. So just to say that this is, this is now a deeper movement and we're moving into the realm of loosening up the sense, the solid sense of self. Like I am my, how I was with my hair. Um, that was me. And uh, this other person that had the short hair right after I cut it, oh, that's not me. You know, where's my hair? I want to put it back on my head. <laughs> so... Um, I'll go ahead and read the, read the section. It's not very long. So uh, we've just uh, gone through the four postures um, and being aware in the four postures. So now the Buddha says, further, the pr practitioner meditates on their very own body from the soles of the feet upwards and then from the hair on the top of the head downwards. A body contained inside the skin, 
and full of all the impurities or grossness which belong to the body. Here is the hair of the head, the hairs on the body, the nails, the fingernails and toenails, teeth, skin, flesh, those are the muscles, sinews, those are the tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, um, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, bowels, excrement, bile, phlegm. That's um, the mucus in the lungs, the phlegm. Pus, blood, sweat, skin oil, tears, fat, saliva, nasal mucus, synovial fluid, fluid in the joints, and urine. So these are the 32 parts of the body that Theravadan monks have been meditating on for 2000 or more years. Um, now I don't, uh, a lot of those, we know where they are, but some of them you might not have a clear idea. And in the meditation we're gonna do, I kind of want you to have a sense of it. So I have something to share with you. Um, and uh, what I'd like you to do is uh, there'll be a list of all these terms and there'll be a, di a picture, a couple pictures actually, where you can kind of locate maybe some of those inner organs. You might not quite know where the liver is or whatever. Okay, so um, let me share this. Hmm. Why is that not working? Let me try this. There we go. Okay, now let me move this a bit. Can I move it? Yeah. Okay. Can you see? There we go. So you know about the head hairs and the hair of the body and the toenails and the teeth and the skin and the muscles. You probably know where the tendons are. They join the muscle to the bone. You know about the bones, the marrow in the bones. I'll show you the kidneys in a minute, but here you can see where the heart would be. It doesn't actually show the heart, but it would be in the center of the chest between the lungs. And then the liver is here. And this is a diaphragm is here under the lungs. And it doesn't show the spleen, but I think this is the spleen right here. Um, get, get your lungs. You've got your large and small intestines. You've got your stomach. Um, and then these are all contents. Yeah, so that basically 
takes care of that. And let me see if I can do this other one because it'll show the kidneys. Um, mm, not gonna happen, okay. All right, so the kidneys are under your lower back ribs. So the way I thought we would do this practice tonight is we are going to lie down and begin with um, our what we've done previously, getting in touch with the body and the posture and the breath. And then um, I thought it would be really nice. This is not the way the Buddha did it, but um, he did this metta practice in other ways. I thought we would send loving kindness and compassion to our organs. And maybe even listen to something they might have to say to us. So we'll take a little time. And that's why I wanted you to be able to locate it in your mind. And if you, you know, you may not be able to locate everything or have an image about it. It's okay. But um, for what you can, um, we will um, send loving kindness and compassion and listening to each body part. Okay? Any questions? Okay, so um, please go ahead and lie down. And um, so when you begin the practice, um, it's helpful to have your knees bent and your feet on the floor. And um, but you could kind of let your knees knock together and your feet spread a bit. And that makes it easier to keep the legs in that position. And then when we get to the point where we're going to start to do the meditation on the 32 parts of the body, if you want to stretch out your legs, go right ahead. So now I want to read you one more part as you're getting settled and relaxing. So this follows what I just read to you. And this is, um, this is a metaphor for the practice we're doing, which I, I really love this metaphor. So the Buddha says, bhikkhus, monks, imagine a sack which can be opened at both ends containing a variety of grains brown rice, wild rice, mung beans, kidney beans, sesame seeds, white rice. When someone with good eyesight opens the bags, they will review it like this. Here is brown rice. Here is wild rice. There are mung beans. There are kidney beans. These are sesame seeds. This is white rice. Just so the practitioner passes in review the whole of their body 
from the soles of the feet to the hair on the top of the head, a body enclosed in a layer of skin and full of all the grossness which belong to the body. Here is the hair of the head, the hairs on the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, bowels, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, body oil, saliva, mucus, synovial fluid, urine. So it's with that kind of um, investigative spirit that we'll bring our attention to the various parts. And then when we've made contact, we'll offer them love. And we'll start right now with just noticing the body lying on the floor. Noticing how the back of the head touches the floor. How the shoulders touch the floor. The rib cage in back and the hips and the bottoms of the feet. Feeling each arm touching the floor. Feeling the weight and the shape of the body on the floor, on the ground, on the surface you're lying on. Noticing how the back surface of the body is in a single plane, the plane of the ground. And now letting the attention come to the front surface of the body. And beginning to be aware of the breath flowing in and out. Breath coming in through the tips of the nostrils. Cool air. Moving up through the nose into the sinuses down the back of the throat into the lungs, filling the lungs, and then the exhale. The air coming back up and out past the tips of the nostrils. Following the breath in, Feeling the swelling of the belly, the expansion of the ribs, the opening of the chest. Breathing out, everything begins to release and soften as the breath flows out.
as you're breathing in, you're feeling the whole body breathing in. As you're breathing out, you're aware of the whole body breathing out. Following the breath in, you notice how long the breath is, whether it's long or short. Breathing out, you notice the length or shortness of the breath. Whatever length the breath is, is fine. There is no right breath or wrong breath. There's just breath coming in and breath going out. But you are there to notice it. Breath is always coming in and out. We're mostly not paying attention. So that is why the Buddha says, notice that when you bring in a, a long breath, you notice that. That's because your awareness is focused on the breath coming in. And that when the breath is going out, you notice whether it's a long or short breath, because you're there. And as you follow the breath, you may experience a calming feeling, quieting feeling coming to the body and the mind. As you observe the body and the breath, you're observing it with diligence, with clear understanding and mindful, having let go of everything else for this time. Not wanting anything, not wanting to get rid of anything, just just watching this body breathe.
Now bringing your attention to the hair on your head. Not thinking about how it looks, not engaging in any opinions or stories about the hair, just see if you can um, feel it as it comes out of your scalp. Feeling all those little places where the hair emerges on your head. All those little follicles. And then offer the hairs on your head kindness, appreciation. These hairs which protect your precious skull. which continue to grow. Offering them your love, your appreciation, and your attention. Complete attention to the hairs growing out of your head. Now bringing your attention to bodily hair. You might want to notice some place in particular or in just a general way. The hair coming out of the skin on your body, also protecting it, protecting the body. And as you bring your attention to the hair on your body, offer it appreciation. So much of uh, our body takes care of us in ways that we don't even know. So some things we know, but some things we don't know. So bringing that appreciation, that loving kindness, to the hairs out of our skin 
Now bringing attention to the fingernails and toenails. Sensing them. Offering your gratitude, your loving kindness to these nails which continue to grow. that are doing anything, offering their gifts. Just experiencing the material of the nail itself without any judgments, without any analysis. And now bringing attention to the teeth. Deep appreciation and gratitude to our teeth. Sensing them in the mouth. Growing out of the gums. Now the skin of the body, so this huge envelope of living cells, sensing the skin, with deep appreciation for the skin. bringing loving kindness to the skin, listening, does the skin have something to offer? There also may be some discomfort in some of these body parts, and we can listen to that. Can listen to what um, the skin is saying if it's saying something. Now bringing awareness to the muscles. Having a sense of their weight. Perhaps there's some tightness. Perhaps there's some ease. Offering appreciation to the muscles. 
offering compassion to the muscles. Listening to the muscles. Bringing attention to the sinews or the tendons. So at our joints, particularly the arms and the legs, there are tendons joining the muscles to our to our uh, bones. When you sprain a, an ankle, sometimes that's a tendon. Or sometimes when you're stretching, you'll feel a stretch close to the joint. That might be a tendon. So just bringing the awareness to wherever you can um, find a sense of tendons. An offering loving kindness to the tendon, offering gratitude to the tendons. Now turning to the bones, bones of the body, our support structure, beautiful, complex. Offer your bones gratitude, loving kindness, and attention, listen, If the bones have something to say, and inside the bones is the bone marrow, source of some of our blood cells kind of a creative engine in the hollow of the bones. Offer your appreciation. Offer loving kindness to the bone marrow. Bringing your attention to your kidneys. Bringing love and appreciation and compassion to the kidneys. Listening, sensing. What do the kidneys have to offer 
And now bringing our attention to our hearts, offering your heart love, compassion, deep appreciation, deep tenderness, gratitude, Bringing attention to the liver, the right side of the abdomen. Large organ, so important. Bringing gratitude and love to the liver. bringing attention to the diaphragm, the muscle under the lungs that is a major source of your ability to breathe. Each breath in and out, you can sense the diaphragm moving. As you breathe in, it moves down, causes the belly to swell and the lungs to fill. As you breathe out, it lifts up, the belly drops back, the lungs expel the air. Diaphragm moves with every breath, massaging the organs. Deep appreciation for the diaphragm compassion for the diaphragm, listening to the diaphragm, bringing attention to the spleen, so on the left side of the body, kind of tucked behind the stomach. Gratitude and loving kindness to the spleen. Bringing attention to the lungs. So we've been observing the breath in the past, but can you sense the lungs? As the air comes in, it touches the lungs and there's a sensation of lung tissue and air meeting. Love and appreciation for the lungs. 
bringing the attention to the large intestine. Offering gratitude, offering loving kindness to the large intestine and then bringing attention to the small intestine. Offering loving kindness to the small intestine. May it be well, may it be healthy. May it be at ease. Bringing attention to the stomach. Offering gratitude to the stomach. Noticing any sensations in the stomach. Listening. And then noticing the contents of the stomach. Noticing the contents of the large intestine, the feces. Noticing the bile. Which is in the gallbladder near the kidney, near the liver, bringing attention to any phlegm that may be in your lungs, if you don't have a wound that currently has pus, you can perhaps remember how in the past a wound produced that particular fluid, which was the immune system protecting the rest of the body from the infection. Noticing the blood in the veins as it moves through Noticing any sweat. Feeling the areas where there are fat cells, perhaps the belly. Noticing if there are any tears or just the fluid in the eyes. The eye is always producing fluid. So these aren't tears of 
crying, but just the normal moisturizing of the eye. Noticing the skin oil. Saliva. Mucus in the nose. Noticing the lubrication of the joints, the synovial fluid, which allows our joints to move. Noticing the bladder and its content of urine. So in addition to bringing us into the body, bringing our attention into the body, away from the surface of the body and inside, this meditation also invites us to inquire if at any of these places one noticed a self, a permanent self. And now, returning your attention to the breath. Once again, feeling the body on the ground or on the surface that you're lying on. Breathing body. And wishing this body, this breathing body with all its parts, wishing it well. Wishing it peace and ease and health and happiness. Sending love and kindness throughout the body. And now, again, to prepare to come up to sitting and like we did last week, 
Move slowly enough so that you can feel yourself making this transition and be mindful of each moment, each moment of the transition, aware of this body with all its organs, with all its elements, moving together into an upright posture and sitting in your meditation posture for just a moment. Thank you so much, Shokuchi. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good evening. All right. Restful night. Yes. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.